It's a Super Sunday Night Las Vegas. Welcome to Wave Sports. Fox Sports Radio, 98.9 FM, 1340 AM. It's Tim Unglesby and Ryan with you. Well, actually, there's all of us are here in Vegas tonight. Tim Unglesby, Ryan, and sitting in for Tom Barton, taking a deserved weekend off, is radio personality. The He calls himself the Swiss Navy knife of radio business here in this town. Our good friend and always a member of the Heatwave Sports family, Chris Wynn. Chris, it's always great to have you on the show, and welcome back. Always great to join you, Tim. You and the Heatwave Sports family, always a lot of fun, especially on Saturdays and Sundays, because it just seems like everything gravitates, right? When the sports world converges on the weekend, it's big time. And oh, by the way, Tim, we've got football, my friend, in four days. They're going to be kicking off some preseason action between the Las Vegas Raiders and the Jaguars. So getting pretty amped up that uh, the calendar is turning to that time of year where the pigskins going to be flying around. It's, it's, look, you know, it doesn't matter what your favorite sport is. Personally, I'm a baseball guy, but I know the meat and potatoes of the sports world is the National Football League. And like you said, we got preseason in four days with the Raiders playing. And that just means we're about a month out from, well, a little bit, a little bit more than a month, but we're right there for regular season football. And Chris, I don't want to spoil anything yet because we still got to dot the I's and cross the T's. But it looks like Week One of the NFL football season, Heat Wave Sports, that Saturday night, is going to be out on a remote at the Las Vegas Strip. So we're going to have to get your request in, request off in, so you can handle the show with us that Saturday night. Oh, no question about it. Those are always staples and good times when we can get the whole Heat Wave crew out there. As much as the Heat Wave crew, you know, is still intact. Sometimes we can drag Tommy out here to Vegas and get him in there. We can get, you know, we can get the Ron Natties and, the, and uh, you, know, the, you know, the Chris Magnum Chapmans get him. Because, look, you know Magnum. The guy's all over the place. He's, he's, he's doing like a million things there with Fox Sports Radio. So, uh, yeah, as you pointed out, it's going to be a lot of fun as uh, we roll towards the regular season. Yes, I think it's confirmed Tom Barton will be out for week one of the NFL season. And I haven't seen Tommy, nor have you. This will be close to three years, so it yeah, should be yeah. a good time. You know? On everybody. Yeah. Well, we got fo- we'll got. we talk a little football a little later because there is a, a big yeah. court uh, case. There should be a, a finding here this week, and it will you know, determine a lot of what we think the Cleveland Browns will do. And, and by the way, we'll do our begin our football previews here. Uh, next week so that'll be fun as well but you know uh, i don't want to say it's obviously it's a sad thing to begin the show with a somber note but again when you really look at the the passing of bill russell which uh, was announced earlier this morning on his i believe it was his instagram page or his twitter page that uh he he died peacefully in his home 88 years of age and and like i said i don't want to be this to be somber or sad because obviously the man left a, just a, a hell of impression, not only in basketball, but in the world. And, uh, you know, he, he lived a great long life, but unfortunately it comes to an end. No question, Tim. Bill Russell, essentially a cornerstone, right, of the Boston Celtics dynasty that won eight straight NBA titles, including 11 overall during his career. The man went to the NBA finals 12 of the 13 years that he was playing, but much like what happens all the time when we have major sports stars or anybody that happens to 
have had an impact in any type of industry. When they pass away, we talk about their legacy, right, Tim? That usually becomes what we focus on. And with Bill Russell, it wasn't just all about basketball. Yes, he was a guy that was a defensive stalwart. He's someone that you know turned defensive rebounding into an important thing in the NBA. He was someone that was a multiple-time All-Star, a you know first ballot Hall of Famer, always talked about as one of the top five players in NBA history. But it's also about what he did off the court that was instrumental. And of course, you know, at the back end of his playing career and and pretty much for everybody in that time period, we're talking about the late 60s, right, where there was just so much going on in the world. And he was instrumental. When it, came, it, it wasn't just him being an athlete. He was somewhat along with Wilt Chamberlain and Jim Brown and a lot of other athletes that took interest and took an ownership of other things going on. And that's why they maintained iconic status, not just because of what they could do with a basketball or if they could play football or baseball or whatever. That's the kind of impact that he had. So that's why there's a lot of reflection today. When, and you, you pretty much put the nail in the head. Yes, it's a sad day. But as Jalen Brown tweeted out today, also it's a day that we have an opportunity to celebrate Bill Russell, the man that he was, and also the basketball player that he was. 11 titles with the Celtics. You said it. His act, activism off the court was huge to the world. And it's something that you and I, we're around the same age, but we never got to see the man play. He was done playing, you know, by 1969. Yeah. So us growing up, and I lived in Vegas, and I know we're going to get into some stories because you were back in the in that area, but I grew up in Vegas, and I was one of the few Celtic fans that I around. It was either you were a Lakers fan. Well, hell, it was either you were a Lakers fan or that, that was it, basically, when we were growing up. And then when Jordan came, started coming through in the, in the late 80s, then there were a lot of Bulls fans. But you know, I was, it was Celtics-Lakers, basically, and we all know about the rivalry and, and what it encompassed that, that era. But for me, it was more of watching highlights of Bill Russell and reading about him and understanding just how big the, to the game he was. You know, you, you, you'd think by reading his, all of his, his accomplishments – his statistics, he was this big, huge giant. Well, back then, right, right, Chris, 6'10", 220 pounds, that was big. And what he did, well, it'll never be matched. We can, I can go out on a limb and say that, that nobody's ever going to match that. You know, he, he's obviously basketball. He's the NBA. He is. As much as Jerry West was, Bill Russell, I think, left it more of an impact. And um, I know you wanted to tell some stories because you actually – we're around the man. I, you know, I've never met him. I've seen him from across the court, maybe at an Aces game or the Summer League. But you were actually involved, maybe not uh, person to person, but you were there in that area. Yeah, well, I actually do. I do have some person to person, you know, interactions with Bill Russell. Back, we're talking about the mid '90s when I was in college and and out just out of college when I was working as both an intern and as a production assistant at New England Cable News, which is essentially, uh, I'm sure a lot of people in this area probably aren't too familiar with it. It's basically like CNN New England is the TV station that I work for. So we covered every single Boston team. And it was in it was basically 10 minutes outside of Boston. So we covered everything. So I did get a chance to cover a, a lot of Celtics games and a lot of Celtics events. And, uh, you know, but I was a youngster, right? I'm someone who's just out of college. 
uh, I'm a production assistant slash intern at the time with a TV station. So it wasn't like I was, you know, ha- having stories that I needed to do where I was rolling up to Bill Russell or Larry Bird or D Brown or, you know, or Reggie Lewis and say, hey, I want to, you know, I, I got a story to do or an interview to do. I need to talk to you. So it wasn't really necessarily that. I did have a couple interactions with him. It, I mean, it, he, he was, uh, you know, look, he, I wouldn't use the word standoffish, but he was, he was cautious in, in who he approached because, look, the man had, uh, had garnered a lot of respect, and rightfully so. I mean, he was a man uh, of tremendous stature, particularly in the Boston area and in the San Francisco area for that matter because, you know, I mean, we're talking about a guy that had, you know, a remarkable career of, of any player in the history of team sports. And uh, that extended to USF, where at USF he's a two-time All-American, won two straight NCAA championships, and led the team to 55 consecutive wins, Tim. San Francisco – 55 consecutive wins in college basketball. Pretty much ridiculous. And he also won a gold medal, by the way, in 1956. But that being said, no, he did have relationships with a lot of people in, in Boston that I did have interactions with. Jackie McMullen has been talking on, on national TV and on radio today and reflecting on stories about Bill Russell. And I would echo a lot of things she said. He also, Tim, and this is, this is very interesting about him, he was a big-time mentor to players from three generations. You know what I'm saying? Like he mentored younger guys that were coming out in the 70s, right? He he mentored guys in the seven in the 80s and 90s where he he would mentor mentor a ton of players. One of those players being one of my favorite players of all time, Isaiah Thomas, being someone who grew up in Detroit and was a huge Detroit Pistons fan, which is kind of ironic because you know we're talking about a former Celtic here, but but Isaiah Thomas revered Bill Russell, and when everybody remembers that. Uh, and Jackie McMullen told the story today. Everybody remembers, obviously, Isaiah Thomas throws the ball in, Bird steals the ball, passes to DJ in the playoffs. It's one of the more iconic moments, right, in NBA playoff history. Well, Isaiah didn't want to talk to anybody for, like, days after that. I mean, he was just distraught. He was absolutely furious. He, I mean, you know the mentality Isaiah had. The guy was crazy. The guy was, you know, borderline lunatic when it came to losing like that. So he and his, uh, his wife apparently was just, just turning away phone calls to him just turning them away. And then finally, she said, you know what? I think you should take this phone call. Who was the phone call from? It was from Bill Russell. And Bill Russell was like, young man, you need to get it back up on that horse and you need to, you know, and you need to continue to do what you do and 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 take your team where you want it to be. And I mean, that, to me, that kind of like epitomizes what Bill Russell is all about. It was that mentorship, but it was also a lead by example type of thing, given the man, and also Bob Ryan, another longtime Boston columnist, right? Another mm-hmm. guy that uh, is basically a legend in, in the Boston area when it comes to the media. Bob Ryan said, look, when you're talking about Bill Russell as a basketball player, there's nobody, and I mean nobody, in professional sport history that has more of a winning resume than Bill Russell has in his athletic career. And it's, it's spot on. I mean, it's just flat out the truth. When it comes to him. So, look, I, as someone who was very young and just trying to get into the business, I, no, I can't sit back and say I had a ton of interactions with Bill Russell, but I did have an, uh, kind of an essence of what the guy was about and I could kind of understand the way he was. And, and, and Jackie McBullen put it perfectly. She said, look, you know, he had, it's not like he's going to be friends with everybody. That's not his personality. But if he likes you and respects you, he's going to give you the time of day he's going to spend you know he's going you're going to get a piece of his time so i respected that and i think that's one thing that's another another thing of the travel trope that 
people respected Bill Russell for. Bill Russell averaged 22 and a half rebounds per game for his career, Chris. He averaged 25 rebounds a game in the playoffs for his career. Obviously, like I said, he, the uh, he's got two two full hands of rings and a finger, 11 titles there with the Celtics. You brought up something that uh, obviously I've I've interacted with uh, sports personalities, celebrities. You have ton of, done a ton. Um and you said the word standoffish, and, it, and you prefaced it with saying it's not that he was standoffish. He was just very cautious of the people he was around. So let me ask you this, and, and we can use personal examples from our media days. So when when you're an athlete, let's just do the athletes. We'll do the athletes. So when you're an athlete, professional athlete, and you're of, I, I guess you could say of superstar level. So we're talking the Jordans, the Bill Russells, Larry Birds, et cetera. Yeah. Is, is it, is it, Maybe there is a, some of an ego there that they feel like that they don't have to talk to peons like you and I. And I'll, my example would be uh, I went to a Laker preseason game in Anaheim one year with uh, another guy that you know you know very well uh, from the sports radio business. And we got back, we got back uh, into the locker room before the game. And it was Lakers and the Jazz, I believe. And we were in the Laker dressing room and Kobe was there and the guy that I was with went to interview him and Kobe's like, catch me late. You know, he's, he wasn't a, he wasn't a, uh, a hole about it. He's just like, Hey, catch right. me after the game. So, okay, whatever. So we'll fast forward through a meaningless preseason game. He barely even played that game. But so afterwards when they let the, the media in, he went to go get his interview because that's what Kobe said. And you would have thought like it was a completely different person, Chris. Just the, the attitude, the uh, and, and I don't know what it could be. Maybe something personal happened. Maybe you know something just ticked him off. But just the attitude and the way that he looked at both not only him but I was there with him. The way he looked at us like we were beneath him. Uh, he didn't even say anything. He just walked away. You know. And I never forgot that. And I've heard other stories as well. And I'm not even trying to pick on Kobe Bryant. I'm just other. You know, when you get to that level, Chris. Do you just do you just 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 let it go because it really bothered me for a long time that somebody and obviously he was I'm nobody to him I understand that and why should he talk to every media member that has a badge but isn't that kind of what your job is I mean you have to deal with that it wasn't like we were being rude or in his business we were just waiting and we waited and we waited till practically we we're the only ones left in the locker room and for him to treat us that way like I never forgot that obviously it didn't bother me after after some time but I never forgot the way I was treated and, and that was my most um, up close and personal diss, I guess you could say, but is it in the ego of superstar athletes that they just feel like that it is what it is. And I don't have to do what I have. I don't have to do anything I don't want to do. And I'm not going to talk to you guys because you guys are losers. I mean, that's the way I felt. I don't think there's any question that there is some element in truth to what you just said in, in individual situations, right? There's no question that there are some athletes out there, regardless, there may be athletes out there. And, and by the way, I mean, I guess I can name names. I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. But, uh, you know, uh, uh, Russell, uh, or excuse me, uh, Derek Fisher, right? former Los Angeles Laker, right? Uh, former head, now former head coach of the Los Angeles Sparks. But this was maybe, I want to say, a year after he had retired from playing. And obviously, Derek Fisher won, what, a number of championships with the Los Angeles Lakers, 
where he was a key role player. It was obviously Shaq and Kobe's teams and, uh, you know, some other players that were, you know, also kind of utility, you know, uh, guys that were role players on those teams. He was one of those guys. And I had an interaction here in Vegas that was not positive when it came to the hospitality business. I worked, Tim, as you know, I worked on the Las Vegas Strip in the hospitality business. And he happened to come in on, on a certain night and was was all kinds of demanding and was, you know, acting again, a player like Derek Fisher acting like he is Michael Jordan or acting like he was Kobe Bryant, where, you know, and I'm not saying those players are right to act that way when they do. But it's certainly Derek Fisher shouldn't be acting that way, you know. So I got, the point I'm trying to make, though, is that, I, yes, I think there's an element to some people where. Uh, and look, sometimes I want to chalk it up to maybe they're having a bad day or they're having a bad experience, and therefore their attitude obviously is different than it would be when they're in a positive situation. You know, so there there may be incidents of that, right? Where, you know, for example, Kobe had a bad day that day and he just wasn't feeling it and didn't feel like dealing with people that he didn't know, you know, or that he had, you know, that they doesn't regular see regularly see on a regular basis. So he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to engage with yourself or others when it came to just interactions, period, right? I, I have a perfect example of that as well, too. I'm trying to, the name slips my mind, but myself and Seat Williams, when we were here at Fox Sports Radio, I wanna say this is four or five years ago, we did a remote at a golf course out here on the west side. And it's a player that was a leadoff hitter for the Cardinals, outfielder. Oh man, he's a Vegas local. He lives here in Vegas, not from Vegas, but he lives here. And his name's escaping me. But it was his golf tournament anyway. And I've, now, look, I've heard all kinds of stories, right, regarding Barry Bonds and how, how he is personally, right, when people interact with him. And, you know, whether it's media members, whether it's fans, whether it's people he doesn't know or people that he does know, there he is someone that can be orny, right? Barry Bonds is someone that can be standoffish. I was talking about Bill Russell, but, but Barry Bonds can be that way. Yeah, he can absolutely be that way where he's not he has he has absolutely zero interest him to talk to us and uh you know use the word peons yeah i mean there's been people that are either you know fresh in the media or brand new to the business or just fans that that he's annoyed with and you've heard all the stories right about barry bonds and kind of the way that he is well seat and i were doing the show at and doing the remote at this golf tournament and we finished interviewing the uh, outfielder for the Cardinals, who, again, I can't remember, think of his name off the top of my head. Dexter Fowler. And, uh, Dexter Fowler. So Dexter Fowler yeah. is Dexter Fowler's uh, golf tournament in yeah. the summertime. And so obviously, you know, when Dexter and Dexter, I believe, uh, had uh, was, was playing the Cardinals at the time. And so as you can imagine, it's his tournament. So what happens? Well, a lot of major league baseball players come and for, former players are there. And Barry Bonds happened to be there at the tournament. And so – myself and seat we finished the show and then afterwards there's like a, you know there's like this luncheon and like so we're all we're just hanging out with a lot of these former players a lot, you know i was pumped as all get out because there's a lot of former detroit tigers there tim that i got a chance to meet tony clark who was who uh, i believe still is the uh head of the players association he was there and so i got a picture with tony and got a chance to talk to some of the players well barry bonds couldn't have been more hospitable tim i mean he was he was he was cordial he was engaged myself and seat now and maybe because maybe he had, it's because he had a relationship with seat previously or something or he, he remembered seat from somewhere 
but he, he couldn't have been nice. I mean, I was like, I was like, I was kind of blown away because I'd heard all the stories, never met Barry because I'd never been in a situation. Uh, all the spring trainings I covered were down in Florida and he, you know, obviously played most of his career in San Francisco where they had spring training in Arizona. So I never really dealt with a man on that level. And spring training is really the best time where you, especially if you're young and in the media, you get a chance to be up close and personal with a lot of these major league players. So I'd never had, a, never had interaction with Barry Bonds before. So this was my first interaction with him. And I was like, wow, man, the guy's a super nice guy, man. And, but I also reflected on what you just said, you know, the, the experience you had with Kobe. I thought about, well, you know, yeah, this is, this is not the opposite I had with Barry Bonds, even though Barry Bonds had a reputation of being horny. So I guess in a roundabout long way that I just described, I would agree with you. Yes, there are absolutely situations where athletes feel they're entitled and they believe that they're above you or above, especially, look, especially people in the media, right? I mean, we, we, could, we could be the flat-out enemy of all enemies to a lot of these guys at some times because we are often judging them or are talking about them or are writing about them. And therefore, you know, it's, it's more of a direct connection where they could come straight up to us and be like, hey, what the heck are you talking about or, or – or praise us, you know, if they like something that we said or, or something that we that we wrote about them in the media. So I think there's no question that, especially when it comes to media members, that that players and athletes and just celebrities or entertainers, period, can have moments when they're not at their best. Maybe to – and like I said, it bothered me, but at the same time I understood because I know who, who he was. And the, you know, I tried to take myself out of my feelings and it wasn't even, I was like a sideshow to the person I was with who really was upset about it because this man had, you know, he interviewed, we're talking through the eighties. He had all the big guests on his show and, you know, he's never used to being treated that way. And I could tell really bothered him, but I tried to put myself maybe in that athlete's situation in that no matter where he goes, and this is not even sports related he can't even go to the supermarket chris we already know that without people coming up to him you can't trust people what they're going to do it's it's like just in that element and there are a lot of media members and we know a lot of them here locally that just maybe they're not the nicest people or they come off the wrong way to an athlete who, who looks at it as why are you coming at me with this what are you looking for are you looking to start a uh you know, something that they could use to further their career. So it's, it's like, are they egging them on into something, you know, and, and you know this too, because you've, you've, we've sat in the same room and looked at each other when uh, supposed media member, which again, that's a loose term nowadays. Anyways, if you have a phone or a no GoPro question. or a, yeah. a little, you know, anything you call yourself media, I mean, it's, we, that's a whole nother debate, but we've sat in a room and looked at each other and like, why the heck would you ask a question like that you know that that i think that plays into a lot is that we're prejudged because of idiots before us or after us and you know i, I get all of that I, you know i just when you said standoffish i try to think like okay bill russell was he standoffish or like you said chris he was just very careful with who he allowed himself around because he didn't want to be goaded into something that Really, you think about the man at that time, you probably didn't have time to deal with uh, BS like that, Chris. 
Yeah, with Bill Russell, you, there's ne- there's no real audio or video, right, of Bill going off on people, right, whether it be right. media members or anybody for that matter. There's no, there aren't any documented cases that that's taken place. It's just, just my reflection on him is 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 essentially you know what uh, I've heard and seen you know for myself, and what, what I've heard also as far as what his attitude was like, right, the way that he presented himself, the what he was about, and. You know, I talked about we look. We talk a lot about the basketball stuff with Bill Russell, obviously, because he was such a great basketball player. But you know, some of the off the court stuff. He marched with Wilt Chamberlain, obviously, when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated back in the late '60s. He he, you know, they they played, and I believe they played an NBA Finals game against each other when Bill was uh, obviously with the Celtics, and then and Wilt Chamberlain was with the with the with Philadelphia, and then after the game, they went down and marched. In the procession for the, you know, for after when Martin Luther King was murdered down down in the South. I mean, this is a man that was awarded the Medal of Freedom, you know, by former President Barack Obama back in 2011, which is you know the highest honor you can get for a civilian. And then of course in 2017, he used the NBA awarded him a Lifetime Achievement Award. So, uh, you know, former presidents have reflected on his passing today. We're talking about obviously Barack Obama. Talking about today, we lost a giant both as a player and as a person, perhaps more than anyone else. Bill knew what it took to win and what it took to lead. Of course, current President Joe Biden also released a statement today from the White House praising Bill Russell for his lifelong work in civil rights as well as in sports, calling him a towering champion for freedom, equality, and justice. Bill Russell is one of the greatest athletes of our history, an all-time champion of champions, and a good man and great American who did everything he could to deliver the promise of America for all Americans. This was a man, I mean, this is another thing too, Tim. This was a man that played in Boston. And we all understand the racial stuff surrounding the city of Boston, right? And how this is a city that has been kind of uh, without question criticized on a number of levels because of the racial issues that go on there. And that can, by the way, continue to go on there. And no matter how much, you know, look, I went to college and went to high school with people from Massachusetts and people from Boston. And I get it. You know, if they do hear this clip, which a lot of them probably will, I'm probably going to get some heat for it. But there is something different from a racial standpoint when it comes to Boston as opposed to other cities that I've lived in. Okay, and I'm sure this is a statement that a lot of other people would echo. Okay, it is a city that has racial strife history that is just different than other places. Uh, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to come out and, and be all sanctimonious and say, oh yeah, Boston is just a racist city. It's the most racist city in America. I'm not gonna say that because I haven't been to a lot of cities that, that could be up there with it. I am saying, as someone who lived there for a number of years, who went to college there, who worked in the sports media there, and was there when the whole D Brown stuff was going on when he got you know pulled over and that was that that whole episode took place you know I was there when you know there were incidents at Fenway Park with with opposing players that they had to deal with there I was there when obviously as you can imagine and you were aware of and everybody in America was aware of when Larry Bird was the white guy for the Boston Celtics and Magic Johnson was the black guy for the Los Angeles Lakers. It had an impact, okay? It was noticeable, and it was kind of an identity thing that people don't really like to talk about, but was there. 
And Bill Russell predated that. Bill Russell was there before all that. And there was, you know, I, we talk about was, whether real racism, right? When, when African-Americans where minorities had to deal with real racism, you know, back in the 60s and the 50s, as opposed to, you know, the 90s and beyond. I think it, it, it's, uh, it's significant to kind of note that, that Bill Russell was there during that time and was still able to make the impact that he made, Tim. Bill Russell leaves us at 88, NBA legend, sports icon, activist. And like Chris said, you can go and read a lot of the, the tributes and um, some of the things that many NBA legends and executives, former players have, have said about the man. So uh, we will step aside. It's Tim Unglesby, Chris Wynn, Ryan with you here on Heatwave Sports. We come back, some NFL news and notes here to wrap up Hour 1 on a Super Sunday night. It's Heatwave Sports here on Fox Sports Radio. I can't believe you asked that. I really can't believe it. Let me see here. Kentucky Wildcats, number four in the country. I'm hearing four first-round draft choices. And you're asking me how that got away from me? They're, they're, they're the big blue. You ought to know that. I'm not mad at you. Now back to Heat Wave Sports. Here's Tim Unglesby and Tom Barton. I'm not mad at you. How'd the, how'd the league get away from us? You had four first-round picks. <laughs> if you could ever YouTube that clip, I forgot the coach named Charlie. Uh, I want to say it's Charlie Coles, but uh, he was talking about a team that had John Wall on it, Chris. <laughs> they, they had a lead, yeah. and they got blitzed in the second half. And we're, we're talking about media again, right? How did the lead get away from you? That's That was the question. And the guy just looked at him like, are you serious? <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. Stuff like that. Well, that was a terrible question. That was terrible. But a lot of times I will, I will say this when it comes to press conferences, right, Tim and media, a lot of times the purpose of a question isn't, you know, to, to be like a perfect question. A lot of times a question is to lead them obviously into some kind of soundbite, right. Or some type type of reaction that is going to be noteworthy. So, you know, there are a lot of situations where that, presents itself but that was not one of them <laughs> and there, and by the way there's a lot of times as you talked about in the first segment tim when you and i are in press conferences here in las vegas because we covered sports for, for years now here in las vegas and been to hundreds of press conferences there are numerous instances okay numerous ones where there are questions that are asked that are just out of left field that make absolutely zero sense and are not geared towards getting any type of soundbite or reaction. They're just terrible, dumb questions. And it happens often and more often, I'm sure, than our set, than those of us that are in the media. And, you know, you get the comparison, right, Tim? You get the old media versus the new media. That's what the terms are now, Tim, right? You, you know the deal, right? That's the deal. It's old media and new media. Old media, right, being the standalone, you know, the newspaper columnists, which, you know, newspapers are unfortunately becoming almost obsolete, right? Because you're talking about, I mean, it used to be the go-to back in the day. And I'm talking about back, you know, when I was a kid and you were a kid, newspapers really did matter when it came, especially when it came to sports, because we were constantly checking box scores. I mean, you, you said you're a baseball guy. I'm a baseball guy too. Every single day, Tim, what were we doing? I was going to the box score, see who had a home run what number home run of the year it was for that person. 
It's looking at looking at all the stats, looking at the batting averages, looking at the RBIs, who's leading the league, who's in the top five. Well, news and and also, of course, when as, as it pertains to this conversation, reading columnists, right? Reading the beat writers from in from each individual team because every team had you know, in, depending on the size of the market, had what one, two, three beat writers from different newspapers, and so those those people mattered. So that was so you've got the old media, which is them, and I would include also radio hosts like ourselves, and I would include TV people as well because TV people also, you know, it's it's a daily grind for all of us, you know. And now, what do you have today? You have the what's called new media, and the new media being, of course, is all of those things, uh, uh, all the things that we didn't have 15 years ago, and you know what I'm talking about the podcasts, you know, the, the publications, everything that's online that might be a perspective or might have an agenda. And I'm not discounting those. Look, there are a lot of great podcasts out there. There's a lot of great, uh, you know, media outlets that call themselves media. But it's just a lot more stuff. And it, and it, and it, and it gives the opportunity where you have press conferences and you have dumb questions get asked. And that's exactly what happens. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head, my friend. We sat through many, many dumb. It was time I wish I had a mic to just interject and say, excuse me, let me answer this for you. What the heck kind of question was that, man? You, <laughs> you, it, Tim, so you're saying it'd be great if we, if you could, you could have some type of audio or microphone on people's brains when their press <laughs> conference and actually hear what we really think about uh, reactions to those <laughs> press conferences? Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> Or if we had the the internet show where we could say what we want to say and really really let loose on them, you know. But it is what it is, man. If if you want to see the clip, go to go to YouTube. Type in Charlie Coles, Kentucky. It'll pop right up. It's when he was the coach of Miami, Ohio. Just hilarious the, the way that he answers the question because you could tell. Obviously, they just lost, and. Um, mm-hmm. It's getting bombarded with just idiotic questions. We've seen, look, we've seen it. We've seen perfect example. Gerard Gallant, when he was a coach of the Vegas Golden Knights, right? I loved his post-game press conferences because it. And I don't know if it was whoever in the media was asking idiotic questions on purpose, or they're really just that narrow-minded and, and idiotic that they would like push his buttons. And I think a lot of times, maybe you're right, Chris. It was to get some type of a sound clip out of it, but right, that guy he didn't hold back a lot. And I, I actually admired that because I felt like it, well, he wasn't going out of his way to, to make you feel stupid, but he's letting you know that that's not an appropriate question to ask. Well, Gerard Gallant, his MO is that he's straightforward, right? And that he's extremely candid. So there is absolutely scenarios that present themselves where he would, you know, in a sense, basically try to call a person out if they're, if they're going to ask something that he would think was not the brightest question in the world or that was, you know, didn't really necessarily have any relevance. Turk would have no problems, to, you know, uh, uh, setting that straight and being like, hey, like, really? Like, is that, is that, is that where you want to go? Is that the direction you want to take? You know, he, he was absolutely that kind of guy. So it uh, it doesn't surprise me at all, Tim, that uh, when we're talking when we're talking about Gerard Gallant, that, that uh, those things would happen. And he's in the perfect place now to deal with even worse media members, apparently, there in New York, Chris. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. Uh, I think Tommy Barton can attest to that, right? Yeah. We got to talk to Tommy about that. 
Tommy loves loves Gerlon. Just I like him, and you like him. So yeah. you know, we we all agree that. No, but I'm saying because Tommy's there in New York, so you get you know. Oh, yeah. you're you right. Give us yes. That is a good good yes. You're correct on that. Yeah. So you mentioned at the top of the show, NFL preseason football coming up Thursday, right? Jags and the Raiders in a game that where most of the guys playing may not even be on the team, but that's okay, Chris. It's our first smell of the National Football League and bigger things to come. And I know you'll be, you'll probably have that game like tuned on at work. It'll be on the TV, right? You know, just periodically looking at it. No doubt about it. It's not, and and to, to what you just said, right? It's not about, you know, the importance of the game because we get that you get it. A lot of these guys could be bagging groceries, you know, uh, coming up in a couple of weeks. That's fine uh, to steal a line from a major league, right? But it's the guys putting on the helmets and putting on the uniforms. And what does that do, Tim? That triggers us football fans. We get juiced up. You see the guys out there in the uniforms. Yeah, they're wearing some funky numbers sometimes. You know, you get wide receivers wearing number uh, 16 and you get, you know, and you get, you know, defense or you get linebackers wearing number number 92 and stuff like that. That's fine. But it's actually getting to see the teams out there. And of course, you know, a little bit more of a focus for us being that we're here in Las Vegas and we're going to get a chance to see the Raiders take on the Jaguars. Jaguars, young team, you know, got Trevor Lawrence at quarterback. And as you also pointed out, look, we don't know how much we're going to see of Derek Carr and Trevor Lawrence and, you know, and obviously uh, Devontae Adams and, and Max Crosby and these guys. But still, it's an opportunity uh, for Canton, Ohio to get the spotlight put on them and to, to to kind of turn the clock, right, and to turn the calendar. And that's kind of what gets everybody fired up when it comes to NFL football on a Thursday night in August. One of the big stories that <clears throat> clouded, I'll say clouded, the NFL wires during the offseason was the ongoing issue of Cleveland Brown quarterback Deshaun Watson signs a huge deal there, gets traded and signs a huge deal essentially to be their franchise player. And we're going to get a ruling, it looks like tomorrow, Chris, that what what is the suspension going to be for Deshaun Watson and all his off-the-field issues and I'm hearing anywhere from six to eight games. It looks like it's going to fall in somewhere there. But, you know, it's, you know, it's the timing is almost impeccable when you look at how this is going to go down. You know, and a guy that had 24 civil lawsuits laid against him, settling on 20 of those, four still outstanding. There's a lot going on there off the field, distraction-wise. And now we're really going to know, uh, Chris Wynn, what – the status of his NFL season is going to be and how many games he's really going to miss here. No question, Tim. And I have to be completely honest. I thought there was going to be a decision later last week. I was thinking around you know, either Thursday or Friday that something would come down. That obviously is not the case. And now it looks like the target is set dead on just a, few, a matter of hours away. So, uh, you know, we're one of the last shows, Tim, to uh, discuss this before the actual decision does come down. Now, Sue L. Robinson, the disciplinary officer, jointly appointed by the NFL and the Players Union. You know, she's expected to issue that decision tomorrow uh, regarding Deshaun Watson, whether or not he violated the league's personal conduct policy uh, following those accusations, right, of sexual misconduct across the board. Now, uh, the news broke today also through uh, Jake Trotter over at ESPN. He talked about how uh, Watson apparently has agreed to settle. You mentioned four of those lawsuits, right? Well, he's agreed to settle three of those remaining against him, uh, according to Houston attorney Tony Busby. 
who told that to uh, John Barr uh, earlier uh, last week. So you've got Sue Robinson, who's a, you know, a former U.S. district judge, uh, with the possibility that if she imposes any punishment whatsoever, either side's going to have three days to essentially submit an appeal in writing. And in that case, you'll have Roger Goodell or his uh, – or his designee, whoever, you know, if he had somebody else that wants to do it, will issue a written decision that will constitute full, final, and complete uh, disposition of the dispute per terms of uh, Article 46 in the CBA. So, uh, look, the NFL Players Association already made it clear in a statement today that it won't appeal. Now, as far as what the punishment, right, Tim, because this is what's going to be I don't know if intriguing is the right word, but what's going to kind of trigger emotions around the league and fan, among fans. If he gets like four to six games, it's going to be looked at like, oh, you're being too light on Deshaun Watson. He's not getting the punishments, not fitting the crime. We saw what happened with Ray Rice and, you know, and, and Joe, Joe Mixon and all these other, you know, and uh, not Mixon, but Mixon was in college, but, you understand what I'm saying? Like these other people that got in trouble and, you know, they faced a wrath. If he gets between four and six games, people are going to be up in arms. I mean, without question, unless you're a Cleveland Browns fan and you're just clouded by your love of the Browns and you, you want to see the guy back on the field, people are going to be upset. Now, if he gets a year now, obviously, what's that going to do? That's going to, you know, th- then he, him and his camp are going to be up in arms as well, too. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see exactly what the final outcome is as far as the punishment for Deshaun Watson. But let's be straight up about it, right, Tim? This, it, I mean, the Brown season kind of is held in the balance here because you're not, I mean, look, you're not going to, uh, you know, all due respect to the guys they have in that quarterback room, but there's not a Deshaun Watson in that quarterback room. So, you know, if, if they're going to compete with the likes of, of, of the Cincinnati Bengals and the Ravens and the Steelers in that division, you gotta, you, you got to have that guy in the field sooner than later. I'm not saying that he should be. I'm just saying that, you know, from a, a Brown standpoint, as far as entering the season, you know, there, there's got to – as far as a fran- there's a franchise is concerned, the Cleveland Browns, a definitive – a decision that is final and done – and finished with and finito is in their best interest. I just don't know if that's going to be the case because you got the appeal process and you've got what could happen. So, uh, but again, I'll wrap it up by saying this. If he gets him, if he gets between four and six or even, or heaven forbid, less than that, you're going to have activists and you're going to have people and you're going to have a lot of people that are going to be upset. And I think rightfully so. If he gets much more than that, much more meaning like yeah, the entire season or eight games or whatever, then it's going to swing the other way. So we'll, we'll see exactly what happens. Cleveland was 27th in the NFL last year in passing. That's with Baker Mayfield, who, of course, was moved to Carolina. That's week one matchup. So there you go with schedule makers, right? Because Cleveland, Carolina yeah. in week one. But it, so if you just want to take a look at, we're going to assume – which is a number that you and I talked about weeks ago, last time you were on, actually. We were going to assume in the ballpark is six, right? That's what we're going to assume, that he misses six. Uh, so, essentially, he misses the Carolina game. He'll miss a game against the Jets. But he also misses uh, a divisional matchup with Pittsburgh, a 
very good home matchup against the Chargers, a, a perennial play, we think will be a perennial playoff team here with Herbert behind the, the uh, center there in, in L.A. But of course, they have to do it to, to be that guy and a matchup with the Patriots. But if it goes to eight, which I've also heard now, because I guess this judge is a little more uh, strict, I guess is, is the proper word. If it goes to eight, though, Chris, they'll miss he'll miss uh, matchups with Baltimore and Cincinnati, which are divisional as well. So it's you know, you're really looking at determining what the Brown season is going to be. And can he come back if it's eight? Can he come back in week nine and, and do a great job? I'm sure it's possible. He's a very talented quarterback. We know that. But through that first eight games, you're depending on the likes of a Jacoby Brissett. And they just traded for high school phenom Josh Rosen, UCLA guy who hasn't thrown a pass, an NFL pass in two years, Chris. So, you know, this is a big, big situation here with the ruling coming down. And like you said, if, if his camp wants to appeal this and stretch it out, I mean, you're really causing a big distraction for a team that essentially, other than the running back position, you're, you know, you're trying to indoctrinate Amari Cooper with, with Watson. Now you're trying to, to get the offense on board with, other than Pittsburgh, you know, literally looking at Cleveland as being third or fourth in that division, that's with Watson. So what are they going to be without him? Is it is it six, Chris? Is it eight? I think we said six last time. I'm hearing eight, though, but you say you've heard four. So it's it's somewhere there. It's going to be one of those numbers. No doubt about it, Tim. And uh, you mean you're not blown away by Jacoby Brissett's stellar 2021 season stats of 1,283 yards, five touchdowns, four picks and a QBR of 48.2, Tim, come on. Yeah. I mean, you're not, you don't, you don't think that is just telling of what he could bring to the table. Look, I'm being facetious, obviously a little bit. They would be behind the eight ball to say the least. If Deshaun Watson is out for six games or more this coming season, you talked about the schedule already and what it is that they face. Oh, by, oh, by the way, you've got a team in the Baltimore Ravens who are absolutely Super Bowl worthy. I believe in the AFC uh, I'm not saying they're going to the Super Bowl, but I think they have a team that is, you know, one of the best three teams in the AFC, and they happen to be in your division. You got a team that also went to the Super Bowl a year ago in the Cincinnati Bengals, who, believe it or not, are still going to come into the season with a chip on their shoulder because everybody is saying, oh, is, you know, everybody are still saying it was kind of a fluke that you got to the Super Bowl, and and you hear a lot of rumblings, Tim. I don't know if you agree with me or not. But it seems to me there's a lot of people out there that are doubting Cincinnati and think that Cincinnati is not going to they're going to they're going to going to have a, some slippage this year and fall back to the pack when it comes to the AFC. So you got that team and you got Joe Burrow fired up and you go oh, Jamar Chase that guy can play a little bit Joe Mixon obviously and uh, some other pieces there in that division also. So look I love the Browns running game as everybody else does I'm sure you like you know what what they bring to the table from a defensive standpoint but. If, if he is suspended, let's put it this way. You put that number on six, right? If he's out for six games, Jacoby Reset's got to find a way to, to, to be 500. He's, they have to find a way with Jacoby Reset to be 500. Otherwise, it's going to be tough sledding for the Cleveland Browns here in the 2022-23 season to even make the playoffs, much less make a run at, at an AFC championship if, if, if that's the case. Now, if it's more than six games, then I don't think it really matters anyway because – He's not He's not going to be impactful. Are we really going to expect after essentially him sitting out for over half the season that, you know, Deshaun Watson is going to come in and light the world on fire as a quarterback enough to catapult them back into the mix? Absolutely not. So if it's more than six games, I think it's it's pretty much 
right the season off time for Cleveland Browns and your fans and look ahead to uh, the to next season because that's exact, exactly what the the uh, situation is going to present itself. One more NFL note happened tonight. Chris Debo Samuel and the 49ers look like they've agreed on a three-year, $71.5 million extension. So this was a sticking point towards the end of last season, and it just stretched about unhappy Debo was, but he wanted to be paid. And it looks like they're going to uh, give him that. So during this offseason, we've seen Shanahan say, look, Trey Lance is the guy. We're going to move Garoppolo, which I felt, felt should have been done way before he decided to finally say it. But So Trey Lance is our guy, and now we have Debo locked up. He now joins the uh, group of receivers in that top echelon, Chris. Maybe not top echelon as far as what we think the talent-wise is, but as far as getting paid, your Tyreek Hills, Devontae Adams, Hopkins, Cooper Cup. He's in that club now, the, the Millionaire's Club, Chris. Tim, you want to talk about roller coaster action as far as the offseason? This whole scenario with Debo Samuel and Niners is one of them. You got that, you know, surprising trade request. Then you had the, you know, the whole social media scrubbing thing. Then you had, you know, then, then you got, as you pointed out, like a half dozen other guys that play wide receiver signing huge deals. And then you have this kind of final domino thing falling here today where Debo ends up getting a three year contract extension. So, you know, it, Again, you pointed it out to him. He's the seventh wideout this offseason to sign a deal worth at least $24 million a year. This is crazy. Like, I'm thinking about wide receivers back in our day, Tim, back in the 80s and 90s. You ain't got wide receivers making $24 million a year? you got to be kidding me. So uh, before this year, right, only I believe it was DeAndre Hopkins, right, Arizona, that had hit that mark. So uh, very lucrative off season for seven plus wide receivers here in the NFL. And in with this deal coming to closure, you've got San Francisco and Debo Samuel. It's a peaceful end, right? To kind of it's a turbulent negotiation that went that, uh, that started with that uh, Samuel trade request all the way back in April. So this is uh, obviously a win. If you're a San Francisco 49er fan, now there might be a little other issue to deal with for that uh, team and that offense moving forward that uh, they need to get squared away before they kick things off for real here in September. Like I said, we're going to start our NFL previews next. Actually, I think it's, yeah, it's, next week we'll start them and mm-hmm. we'll talk with Frisco at some point, but just your quick an- analysis on this. Garoppolo, they're going to move on from him, which we, we, could, we saw this coming. But Shanahan waited until the last minute, waited until camps open. And obviously, Garoppolo just had surgery. They're going to try to move him. They're going to go with the guy they drafted in the first round last year in Trey Lance. Now you have Debo. You know, they, they have quietly a dynamic offense there, depending on how Lance adjusts to a full-time starting starting role in the NFL. So I, I'm really interested to see them because when you're playing in a, in a division, Chris, with – the defending champions in the Rams. You have an explosive Arizona team, which added more weapons offensively. You know, it's. I think Seattle will be the uh, the basement there. We know that, but you know, really, what do you what do you just quick analysis on on your thoughts on the on the Niners right now? You kind of hit the nail on the head, and you talked about something right there that hasn't really been discussed too much, and that's what about this whole thing about throwing Trey Lance in a division 
where you had the defending Super Bowl champions in the Rams, who I think are going to be right there again this year. Because, look, I understand they've had the turnover of personnel, but they also have some pieces there that are just, uh, you know, not comparable and just better than almost everybody else in the league. You're in that division with Arizona, who, again, another one of those chip-on-your-shoulder type teams that uh, hasn't performed up to standards but is, is, is darn good when it comes to that division. So, And then you got the Seattle Seahawks also in that division. Look, I think it's, it's, there's no question the Niners are rolling the dice here early on. Look, they're always going to roll the dice when you when you make when you make a draft pick like that as high as they drafted Trey Lance. The writing's on the wall, right, Tim? You know that's going to be your guy. You're going to end up, you know, unseating the other quarterback. Now, look, it's, I get it. It's a little bit weird because Jimmy actually took him to the Super Bowl, right, and has had some success there. So it's not like he's just some average run-of-the-mill quarterback that Trey Lance is taking over. It's a guy that's actually done something. I'm not saying. Look, I'm not sitting here and saying that. He's you know, a top 10 quarterback in the league. When I'm talking about Jimmy Garoppolo, I'm saying that the guy has had some success. So it's not like he's picking up for some scrub. But that being said, it's and, – and look, I kind of get it because the way the NFL is now and the way franchises are, they, they believe that quarterbacks are just ready sooner. It's not like it used to be back in the day where, you know, quarterbacks could sit for two, three, four years – and sit, you know, you you'd have an Aaron Rodgers sit behind a Brett Favre or, or or some kind of uh, scenario like that. It's they they think the quarterbacks can be effective younger in this league. So while I say I think they're rolling the dice, the Niners are probably saying, you know what, we think he's ready. We think he's ready. We're going to throw him in the fire, and we have the, the and the coaching staff, I'm sure, thinks that they're all on the same page and this is the right move. So. Uh, but I have to admit, Tim, as far as making an overall analysis, as far as the Niners are concerned, I'm not too high on them. I don't think they're necessarily going to be a threat in the NFC to the likes of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Los Angeles Rams and some of these other teams. I, I think that they're going to be good, and I think they could be like a 10-7, and 9-8 type team. But when I'm thinking about the NFC, I'm not saying, oh, yeah, San Francisco, I mean, you, you, can, you can pencil them in to be in the Final Four in the NFC playoffs. I'm not ready to do that just yet because it's the obvious unknown, right, Tim? And that's – we don't know what we're going to get out of Trey Lance. Radio personality Chris Wynn, Tim Unglesby, Heat Wave Sports. We're wrapping up hour number one. In hour two, look, Major League Baseball trade deadline is Tuesday. We're going to talk about who could be moved, Juan Soto possibly, talk about – Maybe Frankie Montes wearing the pinstripes on Tuesday. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about Louis Castillo joining his new team in Seattle. We're going to talk a lot of baseball in hour number two. Stay tuned. It's Heat Wave Sports here on Fox Sports Radio, Las Vegas, 98.9 FM, 1340 AM. Now back to Heat Wave Sports. Welcome back, Heat Wave Sports Hour 2, Super Sunday Night. College NFL preview start next week on the show. Tommy will be back. He's taking this weekend off. Then we're off for a week, and then we full gear into the NFL season. And hopefully next week I'll be able to announce our live remote for week one of the NFL on the Las Vegas Strip. Be fun times. 
Of course, we'll invite everybody out to hang out with us, as we always do. We're looking forward to that. So it is football time here in America, and there is none bigger than the NFL. But we're going to talk Major League Baseball now. So America's pastime is what we're going to talk about, Chris, here in Major League Baseball. And the trade deadline, Tuesday, one of my favorite times of the year because there's just so much out in the in the news, and especially in today's day and age with the social medias and everybody uh, just discussing who could possibly go where, and the big name still up in the air is Juan Soto. Now, I heard as recent as this morning, Chris Wynn, that the list has been narrowed down to three teams for Washington. If they want to deal Juan Soto and met some type of what their demands were going to be, Juan Soto has two years controllable use for that contract, so they don't have to deal him, but this may be their best opportunity to get the best uh, asking price for him. And it, I believe it involves at least two top prospects. So Juan Soto, the teams I've heard now are that are left on the list, the San Diego Padres, the Los Angeles Dodgers, and the St. Louis Cardinals. That doesn't mean, Yankee fans, that you can't sweep in there and grab them. I'm just saying that's from a good source, a Major League Baseball writing source, that those are the three teams, Chris, that – have the best shot at acquiring Soto by Tuesday. And when myself, you, and Tommy over the past couple of weeks have been talking about this, right? We've had discussions regarding it. I I, I never brought up, and I almost – I wanted to pull the trigger, Tim, and hit you guys up because you guys know – I'm sure a lot of the the Heatway Sports uh, listeners out there understand that uh, even if I'm not on the show, I'm constantly texting Tim or Tommy during the show and giving my two cents. And – you guys were talking about this regarding the team that he could go to. And obviously there was the usual candidates and some other outliers as well, too. I tossed out the, you know, the possibility of St. Louis with the Cardinals and some other, but the Padres were never brought up and I never brought it up on the air. I did bring it up in a text message though, because I thought they had some pieces that they could maybe swap and that uh, would be able to get that deal done. That to me is the most intriguing to be quite honest with you, is, is a possibility of him going to San Diego. Now, look, this is, you know, consistently over the past 10-plus years, basically, been a team that's been on the cusp but never really seriously contended when it came to postseason, right? We've never been talking about the Padres when it mattered and them actually doing anything. It just, it just hasn't been the case. If they got somebody like Soto, though, I think that would change the conversation. Now, we don't know what they'd have to give up to get him as far as like the current roster, because I threw names out there. I threw obviously I threw out Cronenworth because that's, you know, that, that that's the first name that comes to my mind, not because I'm a Michigan guy, but because the guy's a you know, good young talent there. But I think that would be the, to me, to me, Tim, that would be the most intriguing if he somehow ends up in a Friars uniform down there in San Diego. Yeah. You're looking at <clears throat> of those three teams. So if you want to talk about Padres, Cardinals, Dodgers, so we know what the Dodgers, they, they just reload over and over again. They're very good at getting these top players to come there, and, and they have a farm system that can absorb that. Um, as far as as young major league ready, it would be St. Louis would be the the, uh, the team that they could grab. Padres probably have the best farm prospects that they want to give up. So we're talking top prospects that they could do to, to make a move. And I think if you're San Diego, you said it, Chris, postseason right what's the postseason for the Padres famous for just uh, going out picking up big free agent acquisitions and then being done by the by the middle of the second half 
if they have a feeling that the Dodgers are going to try to sneak in there and take Soto, if you're the Padre GM, you pull the trigger at that point, right? You have to at some t- at some point, you have to go out there and and be the best team in that division. You can't just let the Dodgers win every year, right, Chris? You got to do something, man. Yeah, it can't be the Boston Red Sox and the New York Yankees and the you know and occasionally the Washington Nationals and the Dodgers every single season, right? And occasionally the San Francisco Giants. You got to get some new te- some new blood in there. And you talked about this last week, you and Tom, you and Tommy, but you specifically, you brought up obviously a team like the Milwaukee Brewers, right? Like the Brewers are one of those teams that we a lot of us loved this year. A lot of us were, were they were the sexy team this year that could kind of throw a monkey wrench into all the big bad boys, you know, of baseball that are constantly making making waves when it comes to the major league baseball postseason. And, you know, look, there's there it, it just it's much major league baseball just way better when you get teams like the Padres and the Chicago Cubs, obviously, and the Washington Nationals and the Milwaukee Brewers and teams like that involved. It, it, it makes it much more interesting. So, look, the Mariners kind of jumping in that mix maybe with Luis Castillo, right, in in that deal with the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, you know, could Shoei Otani be on the move from from Tim Uggles, you know, from Los Angeles Angels? You know, obviously, Wilson Contreras, what's his deal? Is he going to get dealt to a contender? You know, and talking about all those big-time teams, and I'll throw the Houston Astros in there too, will they all go in, all in, right, to boost their, their World Series hopes? There, there's a lot of still question marks regarding this. Uh, Juan Soto happens to be one of those. And th- look, you've got teams like San Francisco, right? They're going to make, they're going to have to make decisions regarding people like Jock Peterson and Carlos Rondon, right? I mean, you got there, you've got uh, Chicago with Wilson Contreras, with David Robertson, with Mike, you know, Michael Givens, even Ian Happ, right? It, it's there's you, you've got. Uh, the New York Yankees, who are they looking at? Are they looking at Rondon? Are they looking at Frankie Montas from, from the Oakland A's, who just came back from that injury? Who we, we you know, just by the way, uh, his first game back against my Detroit Tigers, he looked solid in that, in, that, uh, in that game. So there's a lot of pieces out there that can absolutely, Tim, boast World Series opportunities and World Series chances for some teams out there. Louis Castillo moved on Friday to the Seattle Mariners and it came down to, from what the report said, it came down to the Yanks and the Mariners and the Mariners essentially did what I think the Padres need to do. They just put out a better deal. The Yankees have the luxury of saying, look, we want them. This is what we're going to give you for them. And that's the deal. I think the Dodgers kind of sit at that same bargaining is like, this is what we're going to pay because I think they don't feel that teams like Seattle or San Diego are going to, are, going to risk losing these top prospects well seattle said to heck with it we're going to give you four prospects two of their top 10 prospects chris so seattle you know cincinnati a team that's in complete rebuild they did what they had to do get the best offer and they're going to get two of the top 10 prospects in the marin organization and hopefully it works out we you know that's the thing about prospects you don't know until they they make it but they have good odds here out of the four they feel these two are strong and now you put a guy like louis castillo who's had a hell of a season in a rotation with Logan Gilbert, another young starter, and last year's Cy Young winner, Robbie Ray, their number one. So now they have a, a solid a three. They have Kirby in the four. He's also rookie with a lot of talent. So you're putting those four, Mr. Wynn, for this stretch run to try to hang on to a wild card spot and make the playoffs. You know, it puts them in strong. Louis Castillo is a game changer for Seattle, no doubt about it. 
Oh, there's no question. Uh, look, there's teams in the American League that are – their eyes are wide open as to what the Seattle Mariners are doing. Teams like the – you know, teams that could be in that mix for a wild card and or, you know, or playoff contention, obviously. I'm talking about teams like the Tampa Bay Rays, right? As, uh, you know, this is a Tampa Bay as a team. They made the playoffs each of the past three seasons, and that's why they – you know, they – They've had some monster injuries here just in recent days, right, Tim? We're talking about, you know, Kermeyer going down. you got Zanino out for the season now. Uh, they, they expect to get Wander Franco and Manuel Margot back, you know, uh, sooner than later. But uh, they're going to be looking for a lot of players as well, too. And you got uh, – you got you, you look, could Freddie Freeman be, be uh, on the move once again? You know, so that, that, that's, that's intriguing as well, too. So no question. When you take a look at the Seattle Mariners, uh, no pun intended, they could be a real wild card when it comes to uh, what could shake out here on the American League side of things in Major League Baseball. So if you're the Yankees, comfortably ahead in your division, but they are in a a nice little race for the number one seed in the American League with Houston, Montes would be the next guy. It was, it was Castillo and Montes were the big pitching targets and now that Castillo is off the board Montes is the guy you just talked about you saw him pitch coming off the DL do you think this is where his destination is going to be that come Tuesday he'll be a Yankee I don't think there's any question whatsoever that he's going to probably end up in pinstripes this is this is par for the course right isn't it Tim when it comes to the New York Yankees it seems like there's a there's a guy that can be a difference maker when it comes to an arm when it comes to a pitcher and yeah have, have there been other teams that have been able to land guys like that when it comes to, you know, when we roll into August and September of the season. Yeah, it's happened with other teams, but you just get, but don't you just get a very strong feeling, Tim, that he's going to absolutely be sporting pinstripes in the Bronx sooner than later, given the, the MO of what the Yankees do almost every single perennial season, given the expectations. Yeah, that. That's where I'm putting my money in. You know, I, I don't want to see it happen. I'm not a Yankee fan by any stretch of the imagination, but it, like you said, it just seems to play into what we know and that they didn't get their first choice. They're damn sure going to get option B come Tuesday. You, you mentioned Shohei Otani, his name popping up in that uh, as a potential trade target. And I, I truly believe that he will be an angel come Tuesday, still an angel. Now, it's an intriguing situation in that at one point in the season before the Angels went on this horrific 14-game losing streak that essentially has shut the season down for them, that, that was never even a whisper in the back of anybody's mind. And when things are going bad, Chris, as it's gone for the Angels here after that great start to the season, they just never rebounded from that 14-game losing streak. And now you're sitting here with – you know, Trout's out again with a back injury and Rendon's out for the season. So a lot of problems that naturally names are going to come up as, well, Otani's going to be a free agent after next season. He's going to obviously demand a huge contract wherever he decides to play at that point. So the natural thought is it's not that you can say so-and-so is never up for discussion because I don't think you're doing – your team, your owner, a service by at least not listening to what other teams would offer for a player of Otani's uh, talent. And I don't think there's an offer out there that would benefit the Angels at this point. And we're not even talking about the business side. We're talking about just on the field. Artie Moreno 
famous, right, Chris, famous for overspending. In your mind, if you're the GM in Anaheim, are you taking set offers to Artie Moreno and saying, hey, look, Cincinnati's going to give us – or excuse me, um, Houston's going to give us this for Otani. The Mets are going to give us this. The Dodgers will give us this. And you know that he – obviously Moreno makes a lot of money, Chris, with Otani off the field. So is it a matter of that when you look at the future of the Angels, is Otani the chip that you're trying to – to move or maybe it's trout. I don't, I don't, you know, it's a tough spot to be in because they've never really truly had full seasons to play together without one, usually trout being injured. And now we're coming up on a contract year next season for Otani. Well, Tim, here's the thing. And you just pointed it out. That's the big question, right? Surrounding the angels right now over the next, what, seven days or so that we're talking Mm -hmm. about. Will they truly think about entertaining trade offers for Otani, right? A guy that's a free agent after next season. Mm-hmm. Or will they do – or will uh, – you know, Perry, by the way, Perry Manassian, who's, who's not afraid to be aggressive, by the way, this is – who's the GM, obviously. He's going – is he going to be a guy that's going to, you know, kind of make moves around the margins to kind of, you know, to kind of contend this season – or contend next season, I should say? I mean, that's that's really the question that we have here. That that's that looks to be what what Perry's going to have to do. Now, look, you can't build Rome in a day. Right. And that's when you talk about the Angels, they've got a ton of holes on their 40 man roster. You're not going to patch up all of them in one offseason. It's just not realistic. Okay, so look, to me, I think no Syndergaard's kind of a kind of a kind of a flashpoint as well, too, because barring a midseason extension, you know, look, Syndergaard is good. He's not necessarily dominant, uh, you know, on a one-year deal coming off a long hiatus. He's probably going to be gone. He's probably going to be the most likely. I, I, I mean, I threw out Otani, obviously, because it's Otani, and everybody wants to talk about that. He's the, he's, he's the marquee guy. As you talked about, Artie Moreno makes money off of him. Look, as far as uh, how much of an impact that is, I don't know. I mean, Artie Moreno owns the Angels. They're in Orange County. Artie Moreno has boatloads of money. The Angels make boatloads of money. It's a franchise that is not hurting for money, and it's in Orange County. Okay, so I'm not going to sit back, and they're not little sisters of the poor. Okay, so I, I'm not thinking that if they lose Shohei Otani, oh yeah, that's that their marketability is gone. No, that's not that's not the case. But I think it's going to be Noah Syndergaard, Tim. That's going to be the guy. I think that that's going to be the shoe that's going to drop, as far as the Angels are concerned. Um, again, I talked about the San Diego Padres, man. The, the, the Los Angeles Angels are right there in that boat uh, as far as the, oh, we brought people in, whether obviously it was Pujols, whether, you know, I got one of the best players in baseball, Mike Trout there, you know, obviously a much injured Mike Trout. But the point being is there's been there's been always expectations for that Angels team, and they've never delivered also, you know, since 2002. I mean, that, that's 20 years ago now, right? That's a totally different era. So. To me, I think it's going to be Noah Syndergaard. I think he's going to be the one that ends up being moved. If they do they do move Otani, then it's going to be looked at. I mean, look, this is my humble opinion as someone who's in Vegas and not down in Southern California or covering the Angels. Or I and look, I admit I'm not someone who you know is is wired in day to day to all things Los Angeles Angels. But if they do deal Otani, it's going to be looked at like, oh, okay, so we're going back kind of the drawing board here. Is that what we're doing? That's the way it's going to be viewed, I think, by a lot of people around baseball and a lot of baseball fans out there. I, myself, Chris, am dialed into the Angels. 
day to day. And mm-hmm. I'm going to tell you, he's an angel come Tuesday. There's just no way that they would do that right now. You <clears throat> you want to give up on the season, which they truly haven't, but I, that's fine. But where they're going to play it out and see, they're going to start it up again next year, Chris, with uh, Trout, a healthy Trout, a healthy Otani, a healthy Rendon, and maybe to see who they can pick up in the offseason to help fill some holes, like you said. But I, I do agree with you that I believe Thor will be moved for some mid-round or, or mid-level prospect come Tuesday. He's had a good, not a great, but he's had a good bounce back year from injury. And that's their biggest marketing piece. You're right. So I'll call it Otani is an angel after the deadline on Tuesday. We just talked about it a couple of minutes ago, Tim, but I kind of want to get your take on it as far as the New York Yankees is concerned. Picking up Andrew Benatendi. What do you think about that? I mean, obviously, Benatendi, we remember him, his early days with the Red Sox. He's a pretty quality player, to say the least, was in Kansas City. Now he is in the Bronx with the Yankees. Do you think that's uh, – look, and it was – let's be straight about it, right? It was the first big splash of the deadline when you add an all-star to your outfielder. What do you think about that acquisition for the New York Yankees? I like it. I, I like it a lot. He's, yeah. he's solid in the leadoff spot. He doesn't have the power that he had when he was with Boston. It seems like it seems like he's lost some of that power. Or maybe it was just this year. I think he had double digits last year in homers. But um, he's a good slashing hitter, and that's the thing that, you know, they don't need power per se. They have the power locked up. So I think he, he adds a great element there at the top of the lineup, and I thought it was a great move by the Yankees. You know, I, I don't like to compliment them, but that is definitely was a good move, and it didn't cost them really anything either when you think about it. So I was I, was, I think that's an A move. Just like I feel Castillo was an A move for for Seattle, and uh, you know you talk about the Yankees, we might as well bring up local boy and Joey Gallo, who's just had a horrific season, <laughs> absolutely horrific, batting a buck fifty nine. Third, you know, I, I, they were there was a joke that Judge will have more home runs than than Gallo would have hits this season at this point, but his name pops up, and he looks like somebody that could be moved as. With Benintendi coming in, with uh, Aaron Hicks already there, there's just not going to be any space for Gallo and his 159. But, again, there's this team, right, two teams we talked about earlier, the Padres and the Brewers in the National League looking at Gallo. I, I think maybe he does need a change of scenery, and it's just he just never acclimated himself to that that situation. And maybe good to see him in a National League ballpark again. The way you're describing it too, right, Tim, for those of us here in Las Vegas – who, you know, are going to be partial a little bit towards Joey Gallo. It's just hard for us to hear, right, to think Joey Gallo expendable, right? A player mm-hmm. that could be expendable for a team like the New York Yankees, but that's apparently exactly what the situation could be, and uh, there's no doubt that there there could be a, a scenario present itself where he is in another uniform when the trade deadline commences. How about the other team in New York? Did, yeah, that's just that's just unfathomable, isn't it? For you know, that's is completely unexpected for a guy like that. Obviously, you uh, we, we're, we're talking about New York, right? New York Mets. What do you think about that deal too? Tyler Naquin. They get uh, Philip Deal also from the Cincinnati Reds. Naquin, look, this is a guy ten years ago. We everybody was high on, right? And he's you know he's basically uh, he's not hitting great, but he's got seven bombs and thirty three ribbies and fifty six games for a team that's just awful. So the Mets, I think uh, it's a pretty solid move for the team, uh, the other team in New York that uh, very much is in contention when it comes to the National League, Tim. 
Yeah, I thought it was. I thought it was a good move. I thought it was something that they needed in that lineup. When you're looking at the Mets, you know, you talked about Eric Moreno and money, and no shortage yeah. of it. You're talking about the Mets. There's no shortage of money there either, and they've been known to bring in guys with big contracts to win, and we've seen that happen. Right? Look at where they're at right now. Can they hold off the Braves? I still think Atlanta's going to get them. Will they make the playoffs? I think they. I think they're in there, but it wouldn't surprise me, Chris, when to see them pop up and either A, come in and maybe steal a name that nobody's talking about right now, or just continue to add pieces to the puzzle. Now, Jacob DeGrom comes back Tuesday to pitch. First time in a year, a full season that he's going to be on the mound. They got back Mad Max. So they're they're kind of lining themselves up here for the stretch run. And I'll be interested to see how active they are other than the Naquin uh, trade. I want to see how active they are come Tuesday as well. And you talked about how the Atlanta Braves are a team right there, right, in their division that could be challenging them. It's going to be interesting, too, to see exactly what it, the, you know, the defending champs do. Now, you've got, you got some executives around baseball, Tim, that are talking about how the Braves are looking for a hitter, essentially to replace Adam Duvall, right, on their roster. That's what they're doing. So you're, you can look at the Braves, and they're going to take a look at a guy, like a switch hitter like Ian Happ, right, who's, who just flat-out rakes against left-handers, guys hitting like three, almost 350 against lefties. You got Ramon Laureano too, the guy, uh, another guy that hits lefties. You got even uh, that Rob Ref Snyder kid who's hitting like 422 against left-handers in uh, in 50 appearances this year. So there's some guys out there that the Braves can look to to kind of bolster that offensive lineup to get them, uh, you know, even closer to uh, real, real repeat championship contender status. You said the magic word, repeat. And I think a lot of experts or fans, however you want to classify baseball watchers, is that they thought maybe Atlanta was lucky last year, right, Chris? They got off to a horrible start and then just went on a crazy run in the second half to make the playoffs. And then once they got in the playoffs, look, they did what they had to do and they won the World Series. Well, guess what happened this year? Horrible start, but they have been solid since then. And sitting at three games behind the Mets or right there, obviously, in a wild card position. And I wouldn't sleep on Atlanta. You're right. I think if they need a bat, they're going to go get a knee and half, like you said. And nobody's going to talk about it. So, oh, big deal. Soto got traded or Castillo got traded. Montes got traded. Nobody's going to talk about the Braves adding a bat to that lineup. And I think that's a mistake because when you really look at this team and they mixed it well with the veterans and the youth, they are a dangerous, dangerous club in the playoffs. And I know people are saying, well, Tim, how can you say they're 62 and 41? Of course they're dangerous, but nobody's talking about them. That's what makes them dangerous, Chris. And when you have a rotation of, of now, and we can't, you know, they're young, but we can still say they're veterans because they were in the playoffs last year. They were in the World Series in the Max Freeds and the Ian Andersons, Charlie Morton, the veteran there. And they're bringing up the new crew of, of youngsters, Spencer Strider, who uh, he'll eventually hit an innings cap, Chris, but solid so far. Kyle Wright's been solid. They up to, you know, I picked Milwaukee. You like Milwaukee. Tom liked Milwaukee. But I had the Braves making the playoffs. And if they make the playoffs, I'm telling you, they are going to be a tough out. And speaking of the Brewers, Tim, circling back to them, look, I've got a future sticking on them to win the whole thing. This is a team you talked about adding a bat when it comes to the to the obviously when it comes to the Atlanta Braves, how about the Brewers? The Brewers are a team. They can, they can add both a bat and an arm. Now look, here's the deal. 
when it comes to their starting pitching, it's huge getting Freddie Peralta back in the mix, right? I mean, getting him back is going to be big for them moving forward. So I'd look probably the Brewers are probably going to be looking at getting, uh, you know, some guy in the bullpen to add to that pitching staff, you know, somebody that they can, that they can bring in. That's going to be a difference maker because having Freddie back there in the mix, I think really does solidify their starting pitching. But uh, you know, Milwaukee, they when it comes to deals being made, you know, during the, during this deadline period, I think it's going to be somewhere, you know, in that, uh, in that bullpen area. Yeah. You know, Milwaukee in years past, they've made the surprise signing or, or trade. I think this time it's fine tuning as well. You really look at the division. We both, everybody knew it was Milwaukee and St. Louis. That that's what the, whoever that one of those two teams was going to win the division and most likely both those teams were going to make the playoffs. And that's the position we're, we're kind of looking at ourselves sitting in right now. That being said, though, they have to do something. I agree. And Peralta going back in the rotation gives them a solid three again. I think Eric Lauer, who got off to a great start, has petered out. So adding Freddie, a fresh Freddie, will, will help them out. And, yeah, fine-tune where, where you need your strengths, Chris. Hader has been absolutely horrendous here in the second half. Hopefully he can turn it around because you, you need that guy in the pen. So, uh, yeah, I think they'll be active as well. And, and I guess we can round it out before we take the break. Let's talk about the Astros, the nemesis, Chris Wynn of the Yankees. They're right there with them for that number one seed. I think you'll see Houston be a little busy as well in the trade market, fine-tuning what they have. No question about it. And, look, when you think about Houston, you think about offensively what they bring to the table, it's pretty impressive. Okay, and you understand from a pitching standpoint, it revolves around Justin Verlander, who's having another great year, which pains me to say as a Detroit Tiger fan, I'm I have to be quite honest with you, Tim. I'm rather blown away at how effective and how good JV has been with the Houston Astros this late in his career. I thought that he was going to peter out and, uh, you know, go down the road of, uh, you know, of you know the journey, not not journey, not journey. The guys are you know guys a hall of famer. I'm just talking about you know uh, not being as effective in your later years, aka a lot of great stars, right? So I was uh, I've I've been thoroughly impressed by what Justin Verlander's been able to bring to the table here late late in his career, and it is later in his career. That being said, uh, it's not going to shock me whatsoever that the uh, Houston Astros will be making moves because they're going to. They're going to have to look, keep up with the Joneses, and there's going to be teams out there that are going to look to make moves. And and one of those teams, Tim, I kind of want to get your thoughts on maybe after the break. Uh, we'll, we'll dive a little bit back into this, but uh, one of those teams that's going to, I think, is going to help out some of these contenders is going to be the Miami, the Miami Marlins. You've got you got uh, uh, Ing there in uh, in Miami, where they're, look, they're four games, four and a half games under 500, and they missed some of their key guys. Obviously, Chisholm's been out for a while, but there, that's the team that could both be sellers or buyers, depending on uh, what their expectations are. Let's take the time out. We'll come back. We'll pop a couple more names around with the trade deadline coming up Tuesday in Major League Baseball. We'll also look at our own Las Vegas Aces on the road to possibly hoisting Las Vegas' first ever professional championship. We'll talk about them after their impressive victory today against the Indiana Fever. That and more. Or maybe just that. After the break, it's Heat Wave Sports, Fox Sports Radio. Hello, you know us. We're a Major League Baseball team. But since we haven't won a pennant in over 30 years, nobody recognizes us. Not even in our own hometown. 
That's why we carry the American Express card. No matter how far out of first we are, it's cool. You know, it keeps us from getting shut out at our favorite hotels and restaurant-type places. So you're looking for some big league clock. Apply for that little green home run heater. Look what it's done for us. People still don't recognize us, but... We're contenders now. The American Express card. Don't steal home without it. Now back to Heat Wave Sports with Tim Unglesby and Tom Barton. Tim Unglesby, Chris Wynn with you tonight here on a Super Sunday night. Final segment of Heat Wave Sports. Make sure you tune in next week. Tommy's back. And we'll begin our college and pro football previews as the season fastly approaching. It's football time, everybody. Cannot wait. So, Chris, two questions real quick before we jump back into this. Number one has to do with uh, football. So I saw you had posted over there on that social media, which give everybody the tag when, when uh, you take over here where they can find you, that you you attended your not your fantasy football draft, but your drawing for your fantasy football draft. That's how amped up we get, don't we, Tim? And, you know, heat wave listeners out there, when it comes to fantasy football, it's not even just about the draft anymore, baby. It's about when do I get what I'm, I'm going to a event where I get to see what spot I'm picking in the draft. That's uh, exactly what went down as I went to a local watering hole here in Vegas and found out that I will, in fact, him in that league. And by the way, that's that's my big money league, Tim. That's a you know no disrespect to our, to our uh, our Heatwave Sports Fantasy League, but that's a you know that's a that's a three hundred dollar buy-in league. The uh, you know game on, and I'm number four, number four okay. pick, baby. So I've already got a couple guys lined up that I'm going to be taking a look at when it comes to uh, when it comes to that number four pick in the fantasy football draft. <laughs> and where you guys you guys hold it at the same place every year, don't you? We uh, actually have kind of been rotating around a little bit lately, obviously because of COVID-19, everything was different. And we uh, uh, kind of switched things up the last couple of years. But uh, normally, normally we do, do head to a uh, local spot where uh, and we and I'm sure like a lot of fantasy leagues around the country, it's usually like on a Sunday night or, you know, Sunday afternoon where people can make time and actually do it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you'll have to let me know, Chris Wynn, if you're back in. I know you've taken a few years off. He's, Chris is the only guy to win the title and then, then retire from the league. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm like I'm like I'm like the guy that wins the World Series and I'm taking my baseball home and not, never to return again. That's, what, yeah, that's basically what I was doing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll keep you informed on what Chris decides to do uh, <laughs> coming up. So. The, the second thing was the rejoiner. Is that the best baseball movie ever, Major League, in your opinion? Isn't that – it has to be, right? The best baseball movie ever. Absolutely, positively is the best baseball <laughs> movie ever because it does – I mean, look, I it has something to do with baseball, obviously, but there's just so many other parts of that movie that are just cinema classic when it comes to the lines and the situations, right, Tim? Yeah. I mean, it's not, it's not even the baseball parts of it. I would have to say, though, Bull Durham is a very close second to me. Bull Durham's a very close second. Obviously, we're talking about a minor league team as opposed to a major league team, but it's you know which doesn't really matter when it comes to the movies and you know cinema. But the, it's I, I don't think there's any question. And also, you know, the actors that are in that movie. Right. I mean, there's just there's so many great actors from Tom Berenger to 
even Bob Euchre, who's, you know, who's, who's a baseball legend and not because of how great of a baseball player he was because it's Bob Euchre, you know, so having him in that movie was great too. So there's, there's a lot of aspects of it that lead it to be the best baseball movie of all time. Tim. Yeah, no doubt about it. The, the comedic aspect of it, the fact that the team that is being, was being portrayed was Cleveland Indians, who were horrific at that. It, you know, it all—it was all almost. And they were in real life, right, Tim? Tim, yeah. that was what's crazy, right? In yeah. real life, they were horrendous too. So that's that's what's great about it. Yeah. In one of those uh, things you may have not known that most of the baseball scenes were shot at Camden Yards, which had just opened. So it was more of that. That's how bad Cleveland was and horrific that that stadium was, Memorial Stadium, whatever they called it out there. Well, it was Cleveland Stadium, right? I think they just called it Cleveland Stadium. Yeah, because yeah. Jake wasn't there yet. So, And you know what's funny, Tim? I do know that they did shoot that at Camden Yards because you can clearly see it in a lot of the shots. It's like <laughs> that looks nothing like Cleveland Stadium where I've been before a couple times. It is absolutely looks nothing like it. Now, I mean, I mean, I asked the question of you. I don't know if you know. Why, why wouldn't they shoot it in Cleveland? I mean, I, I don't understand why they wouldn't just shoot it at Cleveland Stadium given, you know, I think it would be a boost to the local economy there. And I mean, I don't know what the reasons why – that they shot it at, you know, just kind of a random spot. I, I, look, I get it. It was a brand new stadium, but is that why you're shooting a movie there? You know, like, does that, I mean, I, I went to Camden Yards the first year it was open, and it is a spectacular spot, Mr. Tim Ugglesby. It was spectacular then, and I'm sure it's still spectacular now. And there was all kinds of nostalgia when I was in that ballpark. I went to see my guys Pete Incavelia and Rob Deere and Cecil Fielder for the Detroit <laughs> Tigers back in 19, I believe it was 19, the, the first year it opened, 91, 92, 93. I, I can't remember what year it was because it was back in my college days when uh, there was a lot of uh, festivities going on and fun stuff. But uh, yeah, early 90s. Anyway, I was in that ballpark. I don't, I, look, I get it. I mean, it's a really nice ballpark, but why would that, you know, why would you look at a map, right, Tim, if you're the uh, producer of that movie and say, okay, I'm going to put, point my finger and, and I'm going to randomly just pick a ballpark. That's how they – I would think they picked that. That's weird. I want to say, and I'm not 100% correct on this, that either A, the ownership, Cleveland Indian ownership tried to price them out, mm-hmm. or B, that the production crew thought it was just such a horrendous stadium that there was nothing they could do about it to make it look cinematic let's put it that way so maybe that seems like it would make sense but but even if it was a i mean it's hollywood right can't you fix that up and maybe even dress up cleveland stadium to make it look you know i mean and look i mean in all the scenes i mean you're gonna you're gonna have fans i mean it's gonna it's it's kind of part of it or not have fans, which again was, which is part of the movie, right, Tim? I mean, not, not have the, the fact that the Indians couldn't draw flies. <laughs> and that was again, another thing that was so true to life. The Indians, which was crazy, Tim, you remember this, Tim, remember opening day. And by the way, this is the way, this is the way it is for a lot of major league teams, right? Opening day sold out. Every single ballpark is sold out and it's packed to the hilt because it's opening day. And even in Cleveland back then, the Cleveland Indians game on opening day, they would have 80,000 fans because it was a football stadium that they happened to play baseball in. And so they would pack it to the hilt. So the place was jammed on opening day. Then came number two, Tim, 
game number two, there's like 3,500 fans <laughs> in the stadium, and it didn't matter who they were playing or what the deal was. That's it was it, they couldn't they could not draw flies. So that was another parallel that was between you know the Cleveland Indians in real life and Cleveland Indians in that movie. And that's why I think for us that lived it, we we you know we laugh more. If if you never seen the movie and you watched it today, you would say that you know what that's a funny movie. If you're a baseball fan and you and you didn't live that time, it, you're like okay I get it. But if you lived it like we did and understood everything that the parallels between the two, it, it's absolutely outstanding that the things that that movie was all about. And uh, it, number one, there's no doubt. You said Bull Durham's a close second for you. I can see that definitely. But at the end of the day. You could argue anybody could argue another movie till they're blue in the face. I'll never say that. For me, it was always about Major League, and you know, like you, like we both agreed upon because there's so many different things about it that make it number one, and that's that's you know something that probably will never be repeated again. You know, it sucks to say that in a phrase that it'll never happen again, but there's just a lot of things that will never happen again, Chris, and there will never be a better baseball movie than Major League. No question. And you've got a young Charlie Sheen in there, you know, before all the uh, stuff that went on in the 2000s, the early 2000s. That was all kind of crazy. You know, you had Charlie, who was a guy that had played baseball before. So you had that kind of dynamic, you know. And, yeah, he wasn't a pitcher, but he was actually a baseball player and, like, and could actually play the game. So it was, you know, you had those aspects. I mean, I was a big Tom Berenger fan. Tom Berenger, obviously, in the, in the movie Platoon was unreal in that movie. And now he's doing a, you know, a comedy baseball movie after doing mm -hmm. platoon. Like, you know, <laughs> you're talking about a movie that's, you know, that again is another iconic movie, but he's a completely different character in that. And then you have Wesley Snipes and, 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 you know, across the line again, like I said, the cast was unreal. And, and, uh, and a lot of those, a lot of those people that were in that movie, uh, had went on to stellar careers and, or, or on the back end of stellar careers. So that was kind of special and that, and it was a big part of why I think it's the best baseball movie I ever saw. We got, looks like about 10 minutes, so I do want to get into this WNBA real quick, Chris, because it does involve us talking about our own Las Vegas Aces steamrolling through this season at 21-8, and eight, trying to get Vegas' first ever professional championship. And they look good, man. You know, when you look at the WNBA right now, there's eight playoff spots. There are five teams that have clinched. So we're, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty. Chicago currently a half game lead as for our game lead over Vegas for the number one seed. But man, Vegas looks, and look, we, we, we discussed the Becky Hammond situation and, and the differences between her and former coach Bill Lambeer and the different style of play that they, they've shown this year, the more uh, run and gun, let's put up the points and shoot the threes, letting players like Kelsey Plum, Chelsea Gray bomb away while at the same time without, and I'm going to use the term distraction without the distraction there, Asia Wilson can be the dominant force down low, Chris. And I think we all expected this team to be good. This good, you know, I, I thought Chicago coming off that championship and returning, basically everybody was going to be there and they are. I thought Connecticut had a strong team. Seattle's going to have a strong team. And those are the top four teams in the league right now, Chris. And, you know, so are they what we thought they were? Are they better than what they thought we were? And where does that translate come postseason time, though? When I think you'll see almost like the NBA playoffs where teams just start to, to 
knuckle down a little bit and you'll see a lower scoring affairs. Well, Tim, what did we see, you know, initially in this game in the season, right? We saw the Aces come out of the gates like a bat out of hell, right? Just mm -hmm. on fire and, and and piling up wins. Then you saw that lull, right? Or just before the All-Star break where they losing lost some games that they let's be quite frank about. It shouldn't have lost and they had, you know, kind of like a, you know, a a, a dry spell there where they just were not playing up to par. Now they seem like they've ramped it back up again. They've won four straight games, including a drubbing today over Indiana. You mentioned, of course, the Fever sitting at 5-27 and 27 and uh, have just continued to just lose games left and right. I think they're on a record losing streak right now. But, uh, you know, Vegas scores 94 points today. They end up shooting, you know, it's always great, right, Tim, when your team shoots over 50% as a ball club. And you've got Kelsey Plum, who's not a center, who's not a power forward underneath the basket, who shoots 9-12 from the field. She's a guard. Right, Tim? And she yeah. shoots a 9 of 12 from the field, 3 of 4 from downtown, ends up with 26. And Kelsey playing like an MVP, without question. Look, I understand that, you know, Jackie Young, and I was a huge Jackie Young proponent early on in the season, and rightfully so. She's playing great. She was playing MVP caliber, just not getting that MVP kind of love, but was getting some love. Uh, she didn't have a great game today, shot like 5 of 15, was ending up with 13. But, uh, you know, they, they're getting consistency out of – their starters. Now, look, the question is going to be, well, how does the bench shape up, right, Tim? And what kind of contribution the bench makes? And you're getting kind of a Jekyll and Hyde type of deal when it comes to Teresa Plaisance. You know, she ends up with 13. She had a great – she had a solid game today. Had 13 points today, shot 6-10. But essentially over the last four games, she lost her position as far as the bench and as far as minutes to, to other people on the bench, whether it's Colson, whether it's Stokes, you know, Rupert and Williams and some others have taken minutes from her. So I'm going to be interested to see what Becky Hammond and the coaching staff does as far as the uh, personnel off the bench and, and what kind of minutes she gives these players off the bench. I'm not worried about the starters, man. I mean, how can you be? You got Asia Wilson, De'Erica Hammond. He's playing like, you know, the junkyard dog kind of player that she is. She's, she's the one doing the dirty work. She's that player that you talk about, the Dennis Rodman-esque player that, you know, does all the other little things. She's not going to go out there and light it up every game, but she makes she makes a contribution. Obviously, Asia is the, is the, is the uh, you know, perennial all-star on the team and former MVP. You've got Chelsea Gray and Jackie Young. You know, I don't want to call them support players because they're not. They're starters, and they're, they're a couple of the better players in the WNBA. But on this team, they end up essentially being support in a starting five that's paced by the likes of Kelsey Plum and Asia Wilson. There's no doubt they're loaded and there's no doubt they're having fun out there. And I, I don't want to say that they didn't have fun with Beer, but it was his style of play. It was his system. And you see Kelsey Plum never really acclimated to, the, to that. He, she played the role, what he wanted her to be, but this is, I think what she was meant to be being drafted number one overall by uh, San Antonio at the time before coming to Vegas and like I said, the distraction is gone, and you see Wilson almost like her her bubble year, right, Chris, when, when uh, Kane Bates didn't play yeah. as well. Just the dominant force. I think the two years that they played together was almost like she had to split that time. And, and we – look, I'll never criticize Bill Beer for what he believes. The guy won championships in this league. But I sat there on the sidelines with you and said, why is she on this team? It doesn't make us better, yeah. us being the, the aces. And I think we see that now and then, especially with what Kane Beige is going through now. I mean, it's obvious that the locker room has to be better mentally, right? I mean, I don't know the, the closest of those players together, but 
has to be a different vibe in there. Yeah, I talked about this before. Look, Bill Lambeer speaks for himself as far as his resume as a WNBA coach. He is a multiple WNBA champion. He is highly respected, and he is a coach that is going to go down as one of the better coaches right in WNBA history. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But mm-hmm. it's just a better situation as far as this Aces team and this roster, this this time at this point for this team. It's just better with Becky Hammond there at the helm. So it's not in any way disrespecting Bill Lambeer or, you know, you know, just blasting Bill Lambeer in any way, shape or form. It's just a, something that's different and I think works better for this team at this time in this place. I think that's what it's about. Now, talking about the Aces moving forward, Tim, quickly. This is going to be – look, they're going to they're going to face a little bit of a challenge here coming up here. They're taking on a Mystics team on the road on Tuesday. That's a pretty solid team. What, seven games over 500? You've got uh, a game against the Wings in Dallas, uh, a team that is uh, not going to light anybody's hair on fire, but there's a few games under 500. It could be a problem for the Aces there on the road. And then they go up to Seattle and take on a, t- a team in the, in the uh, Seattle Storm with obvious veterans there and quality players. That's, again, 19-12 and 12 there, seven games over 500. That's not going to be a pushover at all before they finally come home for their next home game where we won't get a chance to see them, Tim, uh, to cover them until uh, Tuesday the 9th of August when they face Atlanta Dream Team, who, by the way, it's a revenge game for the Aces because the Aces are a huge double-digit favorite, and the reason I know this, Tim, is because I had cash on the dream, not the aces. I had cash on the dream at plus, I want to say, 14 in the last game they played here in Vegas, and what happened? The dream absolutely slaughtered Vegas in that game. So despite the fact that Atlanta is sitting at 12-18 and 18 right now, it's going to be a revenge game for the aces, no question about it, and Becky Hammond is going to, I'm sure, going to present it that way. So uh, there's going to be some tough matchups coming up here in the, in, the, in the very recent games that the Aces are going to have to continue to keep rolling through. Do you predict, barring any serious injuries, a Las Vegas Aces-Chicago Sky Final, or are you going with another opponent? I think it's going to be uh, – i, I got to be honest with you. I think the Seattle Storm – I think Seattle's going to find a way. I just really do. I mean, I just think with uh, – you know, with the tandem they have and with uh, and with the coach that they have, I think that they're going to be heard from. And so at this point, Tim, I'm going to say Seattle is going to throw a monkey wrench in this whole situation and bounce either Vegas, Connecticut, or Chicago mm-hmm. late in the playoffs. And I'm hoping it's not Vegas, obviously, because, yes, I'm just going to a little bit, even as a media member, because all, I think a lot of us, especially those of you – uh, not myself, who's been here for 20 years, but those of you who have been here longer want to see that ever pro champion here in Las Vegas. That Vegas could do that. So I think uh, I think it's going to be Vegas and Seattle. Uh, Seattle is going to be that makes it. Uh, Seattle, strong, strong team with, of course, Sue Berger, final season, former MVP Brianna Stewart, Jewel Lloyd, Chris. Right on the mark with Seattle being a tough, tough opponent in the playoffs. We'll see. We'll see. Still plenty of games to go down the stretch here. For Chris Wynn, for Ryan, Tim Mungles, we were back next Saturday night as we start our football previews here on Heatwave Sports. Until then, have a great sports week. I'm Tim Mungles. We will talk to you Saturday night at 10 o'clock right here on Fox Sports Radio Las Vegas, 98.9 FM, 1340 AM. Good night.